This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. So, Michael, sometimes I'm a little bit jealous of math teachers. I do enjoy a good proof. <laughs> they have manipulators. Geometry was my gem. They do. Just, right? Yeah, like they're like, they have this idea that we should hold stuff as part of the lesson in class. And it's like got a name and a title. And I'm wondering, do we have that in social studies? Do we have like these tangible physical objects that are part of social studies? Do you in your classroom? I mean, I I feel like we have maps sometimes. And so that's kind of cool, right? And I feel like, but you like have to keep the map. Oh. I guess the map, the maps you can draw on, right? That are those are kind of cool, but like otherwise, you have to like keep the map in pristine shape. That doesn't feel like that counts. So we did. Uh, my school got a three D printer at some point a couple of years back, and they did print us like a uh, Abraham Lincoln head. <laughs> did you just pass <laughs> it around? <laughs> That's here's... what we do it. I have no idea. I just thought it was really kind of cool, and they made Behold. it for me. So I'm like, oh, here's uh, Abraham Lincoln's head. Behold Abraham Lincoln's head, children. Pass it to the person sitting next to you. Yeah, I mean, it was very tactile. <laughs> and then, because you could definitely tell, like, how the printing process worked. Like, it's a little... Yeah, that wasn't the greatest example. So, actually, my, my kids right now, my students right now, we're doing... Um, we're looking at the... It's very exciting. The election of 1860. And so, we are, like, examining the party platforms of, like, the four presidential candidates. And they're making, like, little slogans based upon that. Um so that's, I mean, it's not really a manipulative, it's not like something you get to like tangibly touch, except for it is, I did print it out for them, but it, it's not as exciting as the, the head. Well, and you sometimes see people that have artifacts or primary sources, right, that they'll bring into the classroom and they're hold, but right, like if globes. social studies, yeah, there you go, globes could get passed around. So I feel like maybe we need- Oh, little- oh, oh, wait a second. Sorry. This is, for some reason, we're talking about other class, we're talking about the British India Company which for some reason got me on money. And so I have like a jar full of uh, foreign currency. And so I did actually like today in class, the jar went out and students handled money from other countries. And we had just a discussion about like, you know, what's on it. I thought that was fun because you got to really touch it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, that, I mean, that's what I'm talking about a little bit, right? Is like yeah. the, the kind of the, sometimes social studies feels like the world of ideas, but there's these like tangible you know, physical things that in our world that are really, really are, you know, reflections and parts of social studies in our lives. And I don't know, I'm just, I'm a little jealous of the math teachers. I want to figure out the social studies manipulatives. They can't touch zero though. That's true. That's true. And with that point, I think maybe uh, we should bring in somebody to help us with this discussion and maybe move it in some new directions. Um, we would, <laughs> We would like to welcome into the podcast Peter Nelson and Brian Durham, welcome. Thanks, Dan. Good to be here. Hey, Michael. Hello. Thanks to both of you. And boy, do we have some manipulatives to talk about for you today. Woohoo! This is so exciting. 
Yeah, I knew social just, studies had manipulatives. I knew it. Let's go back to Abraham Lincoln for one second. The heads. I'm down here in Southern Illinois in Carbondale. I'm pretty sure that it's like local ordinance that every school has to have a 3D printed head of Abraham Lincoln. Nice. Uh, yeah, I'm new here, but I've gathered that. I've seen a lot of Abe Lincoln heads around. So, Michael, I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll let you know what they're doing with them, and and maybe we can figure out something more, a little more constructive. But because I literally have no idea, but I have one. And I have to confess, uh, my family is from Illinois on my mother's side, and I literally was passed down like an Abraham Lincoln head. I'm not kidding. I guess I had not made that connection until now. So the strange country we live in. So could the two of you tell us a little bit about your backgrounds in education? Yeah, I'll jump in here first. We met at Michigan State. That's where we both got our PhDs uh, last year now. I taught in Chicago for six years. I taught third grade, and then I moved up to high school and taught social studies. And then started my studies at Michigan State in 2016 and, and met Scott. And about two years ago, actually three years ago now, I took a grad course in, um, it was called Representing Nature. And it was in the College of English or whatever they call it at Michigan State. And that's where I read a lot of uh, my first new materialist philosophy. And it kind of set me on this path where I started thinking about these ideas and yeah, I'll stop there. But that that course, like, really was my introduction to a lot of the concepts that we wrestle with in this paper. And I'm Scott Durham. I was a high school social studies teacher for about 20 years before I started the PhD program at Michigan State. And Peter and I worked together before we wrote this paper. And it's always nice to work with Peter because he can think at a high theoretical level and can teach me a lot of things. But I think my experience in the classroom, I had this default of trying to immediately imagine what the implications for these theoretical terms might have in actual classrooms around the country. And so hopefully that's one of the strengths that I bring to our partnership. And I want to say that our third author, Abner, Abner Siegel, uh, Michigan State, is not here with us tonight, unfortunately. But certainly you can see his influence in the, in the, the words of the, of the paper, as well as I think uh, it's all right from Peter for me to say this, but in our dispositions and ways of thinking as well. So he might not be here in person, but he's definitely here in spirit. Yeah, Abner's written a lot about the pedagogy of museums and, and other physical spaces. And so he was the expert that was writing about the monuments and the parks in the last section of our paper. So he's a huge part of this, but left, left it to us tonight to talk about it. So. Well, we're certainly looking forward to learning more about, you know, anything you have to add on our Lincoln Head discussion. And we should point out that you have a larger paper that's a little deeper than Michael and I's introductory conversation. And it was published in Theory and Research in Social Education. And that paper was titled Between Aspiration and Reality, New Materialism and Social Studies Education. So can you all tell us about this project? Yeah, absolutely. So... You know, I think the title and you reading it aloud, Dan, like, you know, kind of reminds me of sort of the, the central aim of the project is to be looking at the disparity between our material everyday lives, how we live with one another, and sort of how we, how we aspire to be the ideals. Like you said, social studies is sort of a classroom of ideas. A lot of them aren't realized in uh, materiality in our lived experiences. And this is obviously not a new or revelatory observation. But what new materialism helps us do is to kind of see human agency and our abilities to reach some of those aspirations are 
inevitably entangled with matter, with non-human beings and animals and with things, objects, things around us in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, whatever it might be. And so I think one of the main purposes of the paper is to um, help social studies teachers and teacher educators to be thinking about human agency in ways that takes us down from the top of the totem pole that we've kind of put ourselves on and um, help us see our agency as fluctuating and as dependent upon others and as beholden to others. And as agency is something that's not sovereign to human beings, but as something that's shared and emergent across every sort of moment of everyday life, what Karen Barad would call the interaction or unfolding of making a world with one another. So human agency is kind of one piece there that this paper is trying to really bring to the fore in social studies education. Could you tell me a little bit more about the background of new materialism? So where, where do these ideas come from? You know, what do they just develop out of a certain tradition that we might know about? New materialism is, is absolutely not uh, new in a sense that like, oh, it, it appeared in the 80s in feminist, you know, theoretical circles. Um, now, feminist theoretical circles were certainly monumental in terms of how they helped us start thinking about the body and materiality in relation to theory. But the ideas of vibrant matter, for example, of the power of things around us go back to Lucretius. Um, they go back to Spinoza in the 16, uh, 15 and 1600s. And then even in social studies education, we can look back at Rugg and Dewey asking us to look beyond the human to the non-human that also makes up Dewey's public, for example. Um, Dewey um, instructed us that the human public or our, idea, our ideas of the public are more than human and asks us what is implied there. So new materialism is a very complicated field that is kind of messily uh, constituted by a variety of different disciplines and areas of study, physics, science studies, biology, critical theory. Uh, but Scott, I'll let you jump in here if you want to add to that. I was just going to say that I think it's important to know that new materialism is uh, a way of thinking that is not exclusionary, that it relies on other streams of thought as well to be read alongside each other. So I think to expect new materialism, new materialism to be a replacement, to have this whole new way of thinking is incorrect. And so we need new, new materialism to be read alongside all of these other ways of thinking. And we haven't even like begun to, to, to see what those co-readings might reveal. So is in some ways, and maybe Michael, this connects to your teaching of European history. Is this a little bit of a response maybe to those enlightenment philosophers like Descartes, who, you know, thought that kind of separated the mind and the body in a sense, right? Who said, I think, therefore I am. And that this idea, this world of ideas is really the, the way we can figure out truth. And maybe new materialism is in contrast to that. Is that, is that a helpful way of understanding it? Or am I way off the mark? No, I think that's spot on, Dan. I mentioned Spinoza, and Spinoza is kind of read now as a monist in terms of, you know, as opposed to Descartes breaking down the, the, the dualism between the mind and the body. Spinoza was much more interested in the way that things are interconnected, um, not only the human body, but life and existence in sort of a mo modest, um, singular, holistic way. So we talk about binaries, dualisms, new materialism is very much interested in kind of breaking those apart and 
seeing what happens when we bust through those boundaries between the human and non-human or explore critically some of the binaries that have been very harmful, such as the historic equations of the female with nature, for example, which is one of the interventions of a lot of the feminist new materials, new materialist writers in the, in the nineties and in two thousands. And when you say uh, more than humans, I assume you're talking about dachshunds because I really like dachshunds. I'm a big fan of them. I grew up with them and they're nowhere in the social studies curriculum. I think French would be very interested. I know. I, I agree. My French bulldog Grover would take issue with that, but I, I, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I was thinking more of a French bulldog-centric curriculum. But. Right. I would accept French bulldog studies as a course also. That would also be interesting. But I do think that I'm, I'm obviously kidding a little bit, but I do think the point is like a lot of the things in our life that feel relevant to our lives that are in proximity to us, right? When we walk around the streets, when we go home, whether it's our relationship with animals or as you mentioned, the statues in the street, right? Those things sometimes don't feel like social studies. It feels like ideas about these far distant places. And surprisingly, some students don't seem to be super, you know, um, into that, right? They don't always seem super motivated. So, so what is this, what does this curriculum look like that's more influenced by new materialism? I'll let Scott take this, but real quick, let me just say about your point about the dog, Dan is, is it resonates and, and reminds me of, you know, Donna Haraway writes about making kin with a non-human species. And she writes about her dog and challenges challenges us to think about those more than human relationships that are nourishing and sustain us and are as important and to, you know to, to add value or a value added judgment to, to that to that phrase it feels wrong it's not as important it's it's on par with our human relationships they nourish us and bring us to life in the same sort of way or maybe not same but in different ways that are uh, that are equally valuable right but I'll, I just wanted to say that about the dog because I think that's a good point about you know, the more than human species that can become part of social studies curriculum. Well, and I think, you know, in a broad sense, so new materialism lens in social studies is really concerned with how human agency is stifled or diminished or nurtured and empowered by the material things in which we engage. And so, Michael, you had difficulty identifying material manipulatives in the social studies classrooms, but as you began to think about what's happening in a classroom, suddenly they're all about, uh, all about your classroom. They're everywhere. They're manipulating and empowering or nurturing or diminishing what's happening in, in your classrooms. One example that we write about is this weighty agency of, of a textbook and how many social studies classrooms are, for some reason, uh, organized through the agency of this material book uh, you know, we're doing chapter three this week and then we'll, we'll get to chapter five next week and not to be aware that this material thing is having that influence over some of the essential aspects of teaching and learning, I think is, is depriving us of a real understanding of what's happening in our classrooms. And I'll just add to Scott's point there, you know, a lot of the analysis in our papers or maybe the example in our paper or the examples that we, that we bring up. I would not say are, you know, breaking the mold in like a revelatory sense. Like it's really about a small shift in terms of how we see the world and, and our relationships with, with, the, the, with those around us, whether that's a textbook or, uh, or like a particular student or a colleague or um, whatever that might be, the, these, these small noticings like we talk about in the paper 
are just that. They're, they're noticings that might help us shift just slightly how we're seeing the agency of a thing or our ethical responsibility to someone else, our beholdenness to them, and how we might attend to that relationship in a more ethical way. But I'll just leave it there. You know, I think a lot of these examples, teachers are doing a lot of this great critical teaching already. But what new, materi- what new materialism uh, helps, us pr- helps provide us is just, you know, that new, that different, that that different lens to, to see things just a bit differently to help us maybe ask some new questions. And I think even when you, when you think of the Abraham Lincoln 3D heads, let's go back to that. We didn't obviously write about Abraham Lincoln. My, my mind has been thinking about it the whole time. <laughs> but oh, yeah. I mean, just the fact that this was the thing, like you got a brand new 3D printer and what's the thing that you valued most that you thought people thought would be most impactful for your social studies class. And that was making a, a 3D head of Abraham Lincoln. Why Abraham Lincoln? Why not somebody else? What, what, what does this reveal then? And I think what's important to know is that this materialization of Abraham Lincoln reveals something without, without intention. It just lays bare what our natural values are. What, and I wouldn't say natural values, but our, our existing values might be. And by being attuned to that, by being attuned by what we're valuing in a material way, I think it help us maybe examine our values in a deeper way. I did actually request like historical action figures. I didn't know exactly how the 3D printing would look, but I wanted historical action figures to play with during my prep periods, but I got ahead. So it's, I would think this too, like speaks to the things that teachers have on their walls, right? Um, I recently heard the story, maybe you might think of it as this dystopian story of a teacher who has like a, a Reagan shrine in the corner of the room. It's like all just like this, without any statements, just all these various pictures of Ronald Reagan in a way that feels like a, a memorial. And I find, I find, and but all of our classrooms have some kind of aesthetic to them, right? Of, of images that are put up of, you know, bobbleheads or of, you know, pencil sharpeners or whatever the things are we put around our rooms. And that creates the environment where students learn. And I, I guess we just don't talk about it very much. Yeah, and I'll just I'll m- mention the uh, the aspirational aspect of this, and we talk about the core democratic values, and many classrooms have them plastered on walls all around us, not as opportunities to question or investigate, but rather as evidence that equality exists or freedom exists. And I think that materiality in your classroom almost diminishes the encouragement of investigation, investigating whether or not these core values. Are, actually exist in, in our country and in the world? Are they manifested in material ways? And I think as you investigate the materiality of these things, some very difficult questions arise for us to, to deal with. Right. I mean, the, con- the contradictions, right, that can be wrapped up in your room in a school with disproportionate disciplinary punishment for students of color, you know, sitting right next to these values of equality or freedom or democracy that the school culture tends to, you know, I have to say many schools tend to feel a lot more like a fascist state than they do like any kind of democracy, as is evidenced by the lack of like student government getting to choose meaningful things or have a voice at the, you know, at the, or seat at the table and a voice in school decision-making. What are some of the other things you wrote about? I know you mentioned like statues in the public, or what are some of the other things that constitute this like new materiality that social studies teachers might tap into to, to help students kind of more directly connect their experiences to citizenship? You know, one of the things we write about is a hurricane. We write about Hurricane Maria and which hit Puerto Rico 
gosh, four or five years ago now. And this kind of builds from an article that I mentioned that course that I took at Michigan State, uh, but this builds from an article by Nancy Juana, who is at Penn State, I think. She wrote about Hurricane Katrina. And she talked about what a hurricane can disclose to us about the social, about um, inequity, and about sort of the ways in which she kind of puts it as inequity and racism materializing uh, through the through the power of, of Katrina and sort of what it lays bare and again what it what it discloses. So this concept of disclosure is a concept we use in our paper quite a bit in a way that aims to provide teachers and teacher educators with kind of a different frame of analysis as opposed to a cause and effect approach, for example, to an event or a chronological approach to looking at a historical figure. Disclosure following Juana kind of looks at what is what is this showing us about this present moment, about this present that's always unfolding. So we look at Hurricane Maria and we explore how it discloses sort of Puerto Rico's subordinate colonial status that persists persists into today. It discloses the fact that it's, you know, a part of the United States in a way that most Americans didn't realize until the hurricane hit. It discloses the the corruption in Puerto Rico that really diminished the uh, abilities of their citizens to not only survive, but to to flourish after the hurricane and to continue to exist. Um, So, this frame of analysis is looking at what do we see here from this collision between this natural events and uh, human life, as opposed to looking at it from different angles. Like I mentioned a few examples, but we argue that disclosure is kind of a new way of looking at an event like a hurricane. An event that, you know, I don't think most social studies teachers would think of through a lens of, of the agency of the hurricane, for example. It's more of just kind of a natural disaster. And we look at then, okay, so then what happens next? And again, like, like Scott mentioned, like that's a that's a perfectly valid way of, of thinking about an event like a hurricane. New materialism is simply another way of thinking about things that can be a supplement or an addition or an addition to the ways that, that teachers are already teaching these things in really smart ways. We also write a little bit about about COVID, and there's so much that's happened since we we finished the paper that we can continue to write about. But this idea that this non-human entity really brought us to our knees. This is something that was beyond our control. And so when we think about agency and trying to flatten the hierarchy between human and non-human agency, I think COVID is a great example of that. But even since then, suddenly like the the material object of a mask with no intentionality of, of bringing out of people what they really think about their relationship with each other and the earth, masks have this material thing has has laid those ways of thinking and ways of being with each other bare as well think about the supply chain issues that we're dealing now the actual the movement of material things now is becoming an an issue that we need to think about and i think shows how important material is with our experience in the world as well so what what else peter we mentioned that abner wrote beautifully about statues in new york city in particular and and again, I'm going to bring up disclosure once more, but it's it's a way of looking at a statue in, in, in Central Park, for example, that is not about sort of the who, what, where, and, and when questions that I think we're kind of trained to think about, not only as historians, but as social studies teachers. But it's about what does this tell us about our present? What does this tell us about kind of the sort of cross-temporal 
enactments of, of, of material investment that went towards making this physical object? What is it saying about the hopes or visions that, that a particular people have for a future in making a monument? And we talked earlier when, before we, 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 met, we met with you guys uh, about all of, the, all of the statues that pop up in the South after Reconstruction as a, as a sort of material resistance to, or during Reconstruction, in fact, right? As a material re- resistance to movements that this materiality was aiming to ward off, right? Uh, to, put it, to put it in one way. Uh, Peter said something there that I think is really exciting about new materialism is that I think it is a very future-oriented way of thinking, especially as it starts to bleed into ecological issues. And no, no matter where you define the Anthropocene of, of where humans become an influencer of the natural world, maybe to the point of losing control of the effects of their influence, it might rise it raised some questions of responsibility and obligations that we have not only to each other, which seems to have been really the focus of social studies. How do we treat each other? But also how do we treat then the non-human world as well? And again, a myriad of questions uh, arise as we think about that, not only in the present moment, but in the decades to come. Yeah, Scott, that's good. I mean, I would, I would say that social studies isn't usually about how should we treat each other. I think it ought to be, but I'm not sure where ethics fits into most social studies classrooms and new materialism provides an ethical lens. It's, it's a way of seeing ourselves as entangled hopelessly and beautifully with one another. You mentioned COVID, you mentioned the environment, all of these crises that demonstrate in, in painful ways that, that that entanglement is something we can't extricate ourselves from. Yeah, I like I like those questions because it seems so central. I think sometimes you you know I, I've seen you know the most important questions of social studies are who am I, who are we, and what do we need to do together, right? It's, it's and sometimes it's easy to not feel like we're answering those questions. One of my a couple of years back, do you remember Pokemon Go? This is like the stupidest thing in the world, but uh, <laughs> Pokemon Go was uh, it was older age for a while, and so you'd go around your your town and you'd collect Pokemon. And sometimes fight people via the app, like using Pokemon. And uh, I never got to know so many monuments in my town. And then I was like, oh, this is a World War One monument right here. That's fascinating. And it, it was so, it was just an interesting like way to like get to know more about where I live and like thinking about why these things were put there. And then I was thinking like, oh, what would they think about if they knew this was like a big fight club for the Pokemon crew? I wonder <laughs> what the World War World War One vets would, would say. I think you bring up a good point of this idea that we're not, if we're not attuned to these material things around us, we don't, that we don't think about them. We think they're a natural thing. And even things like roads and water, you know, things that we just take for granted, but they do have material agency and they do expose and reveal things about how, how we live and why we live the way we do. I know Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, right, recently you know, was kind of made fun of for calling highways racist, but yet we know that highways built through communities of color decades ago and maintain their divisive power is something that's really important for us to be attuned to, I think, at this point um, in our understanding of the world. Right, absolutely. Oh, you got me going now when we talk about Robert Moses and and the uh, discriminatory design of highways that were built too low for buses to get to the to the white beaches. All right, I'll withhold, Michael. 
we've we've discussed a lot of important topics from Lincoln heads to Pokemon Go. But I think the thing a lot of us still want to figure out is how, what is your advice for teachers who want to shift their curriculum in this direction, especially considering right that the curriculum often doesn't feel relevant to the material world around them. What what would you tell them? I think going off what Michael was saying about how Pokemon Go got him out into his neighborhood, I would just simply stay, you know, start local and be looking around at the at the objects and the human and non-human things that constitute our neighborhoods in a very, and I mean that in a very in a very local sense, whether that's your school community or maybe a few blocks around your school, looking at the things that are as Jane Bennett would put it, you know, vibrantly and agentically acting upon your students and, and you and, and are part of your public, your social studies community, your small, your, your classroom, that a lot of us frame as, you know, a classroom community, as a small public, as an experiment in pluralist democracy, however we want to put it, opening that up, like Dewey recommended us to do, beyond simply the human beings in that room, as one very simple way to start. We've talked about posters, we've talked about I guess in an, it might not be in this paper. It's, it's perhaps in a different paper. We talk about the layouts of schools and then, you know, the monuments and statues in a given neighborhood, the highways, uh, whatever it might be. Starting local, that would be my advice. And, and I don't think you can go wrong in terms of uh, the observations you might make once you attune yourselves to, to material things. Um, there's no right way or wrong way of asking these questions as, as long as you're opening yourself up to the more than human and your ability to be acted upon by things and, and non-human beings. I, I like that you talk about schools too, because I think of architecture. I remember someone pointing out, like looking at architecture over time periods and thinking about that as a symbol of what society prioritizes and values. Well, there is a piece, it is in this piece where we read about a, a school in reaction to increased school shootings, designing their hallways based on the trench warfare design so that shooters could not have a clean oh line of, sh of shot down a hallway. And so part of you is thinking, oh, great. I mean, the safety of children is really, really important. But again, that materialization manifests uh, and reveals uh, our experience in the world today that have questions that we don't have answers to at this point. And, and um, if we don't get to those questions, if we don't understand that being in a school based on a trench might have different implications and different impacts on our experience in education, then I think we're doing a disservice to, to our experience. Peter Nelson and Scott Durham, thank you so much for joining us today. We really do appreciate the fact that you are here with us. And I and I'm very happy that I did not make any comments about being living in a material world and being a material guy. But like it was on the tip of my tongue the entire time. There was also a bunch of other song lyrics that I almost added in, but I decided against it. Although I did choose right now to make my claim. Can that be our outro music, maybe? Or and it probably costs a lot of money actually to get those rights. But yeah, yeah we're kind of. Uh, <laughs> I think we can sing it. Actually, yeah. that would be okay. No, it's a pleasure being here. I appreciate you guys asking us to join. Thank you very much. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? This article that we're talking about is available on Theory and Research and Social Education's website. Yeah, I'm on academia.edu. You can check me out. I'm also here at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. So some of my work is posted on my website that's on the school's website. So, so we could meet you, the material 
you in the in if we just make our way to Carbondale. That's right. Go Salukis. And you can find my you can find my email address in the in the bios. And I already have some long email conversations with people that have read this article. So we would love to include you if you're interested in, in discussing new materialism in more detail. Yeah, please please email us. We'd love to chat and 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 talk more about this. All right. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. And everyone heard them here first. They want many long emails from you. So mm -hmm. send the longest emails possible. Let's see who wins. And we will, we will see, we will continue the discussion in electronic mail and maybe in other spaces online. Maybe you'll tweet at our Visions of Ed account and go way past the uh, character limit and we'll continue the discussion there. Mm -hmm. So at the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun, creative in education, or you just want to chat, we get it. We're here for you. Tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also on other places. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and anywhere you'd like us to be. And if you write us a five Lincoln Head, I mean a five star <laughs> review, we will read it on the air. We would like to thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Zach Texas for his editing skills. You can find me on Twitter at my material guy handle. It is at Dan Pretka. <laughs> and I'm at 42. Thank you. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.